So what I'm going to do is uh, I'm just going to basically lay some quotes on you for your feedback, if, uh, if we can do that, and get into a few specific words. Yeah. And then talk about how, uh, how we can solve all of the political uh, <laughs> problems. All, of, all the facing. problems of the day, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay. Sure. Great. So uh, let's start off with Bob Ray is the Canadian ambassador to the UN. Welcome, sir, to the Bibliophile again. Great to be back with you, Nigel. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Okay, so I'm going to start with with some quotes from Alan Sanderson's book, George Orwell after 1984. There it is right there. I'd like to get your response. This is more of a context setting thing here uh, because context is just so important to language, isn't it? Yeah, it is. So to start with, he quotes Orwell from his uh, essay, Literature and Totalitarianism. Yeah. We live in an age in which the autonomous individual is ceasing to exist, or perhaps one ought to say, in which the individual is ceasing to have the illusion of being autonomous. Now, in all that we say about literature, and above all, in all that we say about criticism, we instinctively take the autonomous individual for granted. The whole of modern European literature, I'm speaking of the literature of the past 400 years, is built on the concept of intellectual integrity and honesty, if you'd like to put it that way, on Shakespeare's maxim, to thine own self be true. Yeah, I think this was a preoccupation for Orwell throughout his life. He was truly somebody who was not afraid to go against the stream, uh, the consensus, the, the orthodoxy of uh, political opinion or the orthodoxy of religious opinion uh, or the orthodoxy of, of governments, of government bureaucrats for whom he had enormous contempt and the way they controlled language and the way they attempted to uh, dictate thought. And I think the the road to 1984, if you like, uh, the, the trip that he took to get to his last book was really a, a, a political road where he found himself running up against opposition from, uh, from communists, uh, from people on the left, as well as from people on the right. And he was not afraid to take everybody on. The thing that he feared most, as he described it in 1984, was the end of the ability of anyone to think for themselves and to live for himself. And, and that's the nightmare that he described in 1984. Winston Smith was the hero of 1984, don't forget, worked in the Ministry of Truth. And his job was to rewrite history. <laughs> I was gonna say, our, our job, and it's increasingly difficult, is to figure out what the truth is. Yes, yeah. Well, Orwell um, was, not, was not one of those relativists. Uh, he believed that there were facts and there was truth. And I think if you read his, his great book on the Spanish Civil War, which really was the beginning of his, not the beginning, but it was clearly a turning point for him where he came up against Stalinism and communism 
he was fighting there for the Republicans as, a, as an independent socialist. He, he was basically identified by the Russians, by the Stalinists, who were controlling the, the left in, in Spain and elsewhere. He was identified by them as the enemy. He spent time in jail. He nearly lost his life, and he, he escaped with his wife from, uh, from Spain because he was identified as being against the communist orthodoxy. And yeah. uh, he was always detested by the communists, and he always detested them. And that, I think, is a, it's an interesting fact about he was a premature anti-communist because he was, he was an anti-communist from the left, not from the right. When he champions literature, quote, as we know it, he is asserting a moral doctrine of freedom of individual conscience and personal judgment. With the Reformation, he saw it, as he saw it, the individual came of age. Consequently, there can be no accommodation between totalitarianism and such a literature. In totalitarian society, that survives for more than a couple of generations, says Orwell, it is probable that prose literature of the kind that has existed during the past 400 years must actually come to an end. Prose literature as we know it is the product of rationalism of the Protestant centuries of the autonomous individual. Yeah, well, I think by totalitarian, he was, I mean, he had a very grim outlook at, at, towards the end. He died at 50. He suffered from tuberculosis. His last years of the world was closing in on him in every way, and, and, he, knew, and he knew it. He, he knew he was getting to the end of his, of, his, of his time. And so there was an immediacy to his writing and a, an incredible bleakness to his writing. It's yes. early 1984 that was very strong. But on the other hand, he, in a sense, he contradicted himself. Rebecca Solnit has written an, an interesting book that came out this year yeah. uh, called or Orwell's Roses, where she points out how Orwell actually loved nature and took immense comfort in, uh, in knowing the names of trees and flowers and birds and animals. And, and they lived for much of his life in the countryside, insisted on, on, on connecting with, with the natural world. And that was another way for him to say, uh, a fie on all of you who would make politics the determinant of absolutely everything. And although mm -hmm. he was a political writer and he believed that you could not get out of political commitment, he drew very real limits around politics. He didn't believe that politics could dictate what the individual did. And, and he didn't believe that, that politics should be or could be all consuming. And that when it became all consuming, which is what I mean, what I take totalitarian to mean, meaning that, that politics and government becomes all-consuming, consumes all, and destroys all, insists on conformity from all. One of the first people to really point this out was Edmund Burke in, uh, in, in, in the 18th century when he described the French Revolution in a way that, frankly, a lot of people have not been able to effectively respond to. He identified the, the terror of the French Revolution and the, the terrible orthodoxy of the Jacobins and how they, they you know, cut everybody's heads off and who was next and whose head was gonna roll off next and the meaning of the terror. And what, it really, what, he really, what Burke really saw was a world in which all of the protections of freedom, all of the little ways in which we protect people's privacy, uh, people's ability to, uh, to be true to themselves and to their own platoon was obliterated. I say Burke was the first, I mean, actually, uh, if you remember the great words in 
uh, in the play A Man for All Seasons, there's a great speech by Sir Thomas More where he talks about if you if you get rid of all the little protections, I don't have the phrase in front of me, but if you get rid of all the little ramparts that protect individual laws, you'll leave nothing in their place. And that's, an, in a sense, that what made, uh, although Orwell would never have thought of himself in this way, it's what made Orwell, in a sense, conservative, culturally conservative. Yes, but you know what's interesting, though, is that there is, what he's suggesting is that there is a kind of a cause and effect. You know, the little ramparts are contained in our language. Yes. And if we don't stay vigilant, we meaning citizens and, and journalists and against uh, what, what politics, politicians may be trying to sell us, and, and that is grabbing power, I suppose, uh, or keeping it, then we're in trouble. Totally. I mean... In the, uh, in the famous essay on politics in the English language, which he wrote towards the end of his life, in the last four or five years of his life, uh, it's a very funny essay because he's, he's really making fun of a lot of his contemporary political writers and others, but not just political writers, but the way in which a language becomes less precise, less meaningful, you know, phraseology that loses all connection with, uh, with reality, I, uh, I, I felt the same thing was when I wrote about that and what's happened, what's happened to politics. And yes. it, it, it's the same idea that, you know, we stand up and we just mouth these phrases. I mean, here at the United Nations, it, it's, it's just amazing the way cliches just, just spill out of everybody's that, mouth. And that and, was and, the big thing, wasn't it? He was, cliches are lazy thinking and they mean nothing. And when someone says them, it means nothing, and then they look like they mean nothing. Yeah, totally. So speech loses its meaning, and writing loses its meaning. And I think what he was insisting on in the politics in the English language was he was fighting against the theory that this is all just inevitable. Don't worry about it. It's yeah. the way it is, the way of the world. And he was saying, no, my job is to tell people that this is what's happening, and it's a dangerous way in which by pretending that the meaning of words doesn't matter, that we lose the ability to actually describe the world, that we, we describe it in ways that don't actually do the world justice, do the truth justice. Um, well, if you describe a tree without naming what the tree is, if you just talk about, if everything is a blur and just a series of, of, of blurry words and blurry things, if you, if you can't say, I killed him, if, if you say that well, he died under these unfortunate circumstances, as opposed to I actually shot this guy, uh, then you're you're failing to describe the world as it really is. Yeah, the way he puts it is that language isn't an organic, natural growth. It's an instrument which we shape for our own purposes. And he then says that it's not frivolous to get rid of bad habits in the use of language one can think more clearly and to think clearly is a necessary first step towards political regeneration, which is exactly what we need today. Yeah, I think Chris Hitchens, who was actually, actually somebody that I knew quite well because Chris, Chris and I were students together at Oxford in the 1960s. One of Chris's last books was Orwell's Victory, which it's a, it's a good little book. I mean, you know, it's, it's, there's so many books written about Orwell. I mean, Chris is his, one of the simplest and most direct and shortest ones. And it's a very good book. And he describes 
you know, the nature of Orwell's struggle, but also the, 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 the relevance of Orwell, why Orwell still matters. But I mean, that's it's what, like- That's it, what his book is called. Yes, yeah. It's about how the things he was talking about are still very true and very real. One of the best other books that I've written about, that I've read about Orwell is, is, is a book by a, an American writer who lives in Asia, her name was Emma Larkin. And she wrote a book called With, With Orwell in Burma. And not many people know about this book, but it's really good. Uh, and because of the work that I did in Myanmar, I immediately picked it up and, and read it. And, and it's so fascinating to see how she describes how the dictators in, in, uh, in, in Myanmar use exactly the same, the same approaches of, of lying and obfuscating and using language in a way that means nothing and repeating these phrases over and over and over again and trying to get their language into, into the, the common thought what Orwell would have called newspeak, uh, yes. you know, that there's this new way of speaking, which is itself. So, but it, and then at the UN, we have UN speak. I mean, there are frequently documents that come out of the UN that you literally have difficulty understanding. What are they, what are they actually trying to say? Yeah. Because the, yeah. the, the, the language is so abstract and so repetitive phrases over and over again, uh, the one, the one they always use now is "no one left behind." No one left behind. Well, the reality is we're leaving all kinds of people behind all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, yeah. why do we keep repeating the phrase when we're doing the opposite? And again, this is from from uh, Alan Sanderson. Orwell is uh, is certainly for reform and change, but from the dialectic position of the Protestant, holding fast to his belief in the autonomous individual. Naturally, this defines for him the nature of the enemy. And this is Orwell here. Why is it that everything we mean by culture is menaced by totalitarianism? Because totalitarianism menaces the existence of the individual. And the last four or 500 years have put the individual so emphatically on the map that it's hard for us to imagine uh, him off it again. Not only is Orwell's consciousness of the personal self as a cultural idea made perfectly clear here, so is his commitment to the defense of a concept once again vulnerable to the encroachments of totalitarianism. And it is his fidelity to this engagement that provides his work with consistency and unity and his readers with a clear perspective within which to view his creative achievement. Yeah, I think that's, it's true. But what's interesting about, about Orwell is the contradiction in a sense. One of the great contradictions in him is that he was, he was a great individualist and he did believe profoundly in the importance of individual conscience and individuals having the ability to think for themselves and to think with integrity. But he was also a very committed socialist. He relates uh, his own transformation how Eric Blair became George Orwell to um, his discovery of politics and how important uh, political engagement was for him as a that's writer. Not, that's not contradictory, though. No, but it, the fact that, I mean, I think that in, in a sense, what Sanderson may be missing a little bit is, yes, George Orwell was a fantastic individualist, but he was also deeply committed socialist. And I don't think no. that's a contradiction, but there have been many efforts over the years to turn Orwell into a kind of neoconservative. And people, I mean, one of the things that 
in the, in the, you know, the, the post Orwell world, which is all the world since 1950, many different groups have tried to capture Orwell for themselves. Yes, because you've got the right wing freedom yeah. individual. Uh, and then, of course, yes, go to the community. But let's look at uh, let's do what he does then, because he names names in that that great essay of his. He 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 identifies phrases and words and such. And so I want I want to do that too. Uh, the word totalitarianism, the right, if you will, in Canada, has branded Trudeau a totalitarian for what he did to that trucker's convoy and what what he did freezing accounts. How can you have this word totalitarianism applying to Trudeau, a leader in you know, the Western world or a, a leader in a, in a democratic Western country to what uh, Putin is doing right now? How can you, you use the same word? You can't. You, you can't. Well, they are using it, though. Well, the people will misuse words all the time. I mean, of course, people are going to are going to use words that way. I mean, in my own political life, I've been called every, I've been described as a communist or as a reactionary or what, I mean, a million different nouns are thrown at me that don't right. bear any relationship to the truth or to what I, what I really believe in, what I believed in all my life. Um, right. But I think, that, I think that that's to be expected, but it, it's the abuse, the use and abuse of language and the use abuse of terms. But I think it's, probably fair to say that the word came into wide currency with a great book by the political philosopher Hannah Arendt, right. uh, where she talked about the origins of totalitarianism. And it's really a term that has emerged in the 1930s and 40s to describe a phenomenon that was true of both of Nazism and of communism. And Sorry of course, to interrupt, but I, I understand that. But I guess what Orwell is telling us to do is to at today's use of language and to and to call it out that's what i'm doing with this word totalitarianism being used against trudeau right well it's nonsense there's no there's no relationship or connection between it. i mean even people for example i put out a tweet in the middle of the of that conflict where i said look a, a, a truck is not is not a speech <laughs> If you're parking your truck in the, the right next to the prime minister's office and you right. got say I'm I'm exercising my freedom of speech by parking my truck here, I said you say the, these right. two things are not connected, uh, yes. and and you've got to understand that the, there's a difference between them. And well, so it's, a, need, it's an actual need, it's an actual physical breaking of the law. Yeah, totally. That's right. Right. And the fact is that what everything the prime minister has done, he's been done through parliamentary means and by and with the constitution of the charter of rights surrounding everything that he does. And so the idea that somehow he's a dictator uh, is nonsensical. Well, we, we call it nonsensical, but the political dialogue today is going there with this language. Well, that's why you have to challenge it. I mean, one of the things that you, you do, I mean, one of, one of my jobs at the UN, I think, or at least that's how I've interpreted my job is to say, my job is to try to uh, speak as clearly as I can about what is happening and to right. call out other people who describe it in a way that is, has no credibility. I mean, the, Putin, for example, describes his uh, attack on Ukraine as what he called a, quote, special military operation. 
I mean, can you imagine what a field day Orwell would have had with that phrase? Well, and he I also mean, uses the term, he uses the term uh, denazification. Right, which is nonsense. I mean, it's, I mean, if any, if any country could be described now as closer to fascism um, or <laughs> to the horrors of fascism than any other, it would be the Russian Federation. It's a dictatorship, effectively. It's operating as a as a society that is trying to control everything and everybody, and that's using military force against its neighbor and is killing people uh, in the name of some ideology that they've invented. It's got to be called out for what it is. Okay, just to finish off the totalitarianism line, the Trudeau government has set up an inquiry into this, but it's framed it so as to look at the behavior of the protesters and not at the actions of the government, which involved freezing accounts. There's something wrong with that. It's not an inquiry. Well, they're required by the law to set up an inquiry after they've declared the emergency. They are. What kind of inquiry, though? If it's just well, looking at the actors. One, one, one of the things that any government has to realize is when you name an inquiry and you name a judge to do the inquiry, that judge will pretty well tell you what the inquiry is going to be. I mean, <laughs> it's you can you can you can, <laughs> you can you can rest assured that Justice Rouleau is is going to take uh, a view under the legislation as to what his inquiry is about. I don't think I'm not sure not going to interfere or comment on it. Uh, but th the fact of the matter is is that any any inquiry is going to deal with all of the circumstances surrounding the declaration, including why they had to do it or why they thought they had to do it, okay. and also okay. what they subsequently did. That's what I'm hoping for, is a real inquiry. Then. Of is course, it, there'll be a real inquiry. It's a public inquiry his, under the Inquiries Act. Yes, because his, because his opposition, of course, is saying that he's framing the discussion uh, in such a way as not to be able to come up with the, quote, truth, unquote. No, I don't think. I think that I think that's that's how they're framing it, though. That's but how it's underestimate that, that underestimates the independence of the judiciary. Yes, it does. The judge, yeah. the judge is going to be an independent guy. The Inquiry Act gives the judge extensive powers, and he's going to do his job. I don't think you should undermine him. No, I'm. I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying again, the opposition comes up with lines like he's a liberal fundraiser, or he was appointed this and that by the liberals. So lots of lots of lots of judges have had a life before they became judges. Yes. yes okay. So Let's we have to on. assume. We have to assume that that. I mean, I suppose people could say, well, I'm not a I'm not a real ambassador because I was a I was a member of yes. the Liberal Party. Yes. I was also a member of the New Democratic Party, and I've raised money for lots of people in the past. I'm prepared to defend my own integrity, and I would defend yes. Justice Rouleau's integrity. That's right. It's it's an insult. Uh, it, it's an insult to you. Well, I can take. I kind of the thing is, I can re I can respond. Problem the judge has, he he can't respond to any attack. Okay. But I, but I can. <laughs> Very good. Uh, let's just get on. We haven't got too much time, unfortunately. But let's get on to and again in the in the uh, spirit of Orwell. Let's get on to the, uh, the word genocide. Genocide, Putin's behavior has been, I think, recently condemned as genocidal. The residential school policy by Trudeau has been called genocide, but they're not calling what China is doing genocide. 
So what's this, what's the word? And I'll shut up and just get your take on that. Well, I mean, I think an argument could be made in each case that, that they are, uh, that, that they are genocidal and they are a genocide or an attempt at committing a genocide. I think a case can be made for the, with respect to China and the Uyghurs. I think a case can be made for what we collectively Canadian settlers did over a period of hundreds of years to indigenous people as being an, an attempt to wipe them out. And the same can be said, I think very clearly about Putin's determination to do the same with respect to Ukraine. We're on the same wavelength here, but then the Canadian government won't call what China's doing genocide. Well, but it, the parliament has, and, and I don't think we should be precious about, about that one way or but the other. The government me, hasn't though, government you know, hasn't. Well, to me, I think it's important to look at two things. One is the use of the word genocide is at one of the same time, it's a legal term. So yes, if I say, yes. Nigel, you, you, Nigel, you're committed to murder. Um, right. You look up murder in the criminal code, it has, a, it has a meaning. And it's limited to that meaning. And we say, well, that was a murderous event, or, you know, he murdered that speech. I mean, there's ways in which we use the word in a variety of ways. With respect to genocide, what's really, I think, the challenge for people, particularly people who are lawyers, is that Canada signed a treaty called the Genocide Convention. And that genocide is given a particular definition in that, in that convention. And by the way, genocide is actually a, a modern word. It was invented uh, by Raphael Lemkin to describe the, the attempt to murder a people. And that's what the, the word genocide means. Genus, homicide, homicide is the murder of a man. Genocide is the murder of a people. And, but then in the, in the convention, he goes on to describe where it's murder, in, if you like, the elimination in whole or in part. And it also yes. has other features to it uh, in terms of how a genocide can take place and how activities can be genocidal. So it's important for us to be, to be precise about that. But if you're, a, if you're a government and it requires intent, it has to be done with intent. But the purpose of my doing this is to do this. Yes. In the case of yes. Putin, you can, you can see very clearly that what yeah. Putin is denying the existence of Ukrainian people. He's denying the existence of a separate culture or the legitimacy. And, he and, he's, saying, actually, and he's actually murdering them and we've got that on record. Yes, he is murdering them. And he's also, I mean, the other activities that he's carrying on in terms of education, in terms of kidnapping children, removing children from their, from their yes. parents and from their yeah. culture. I mean, one of the reasons why the residential school situation can be described as genocidal is because we took kids out of their parental situation, put them into schools with the determination to eliminate their ability to speak their language and to remain as Indians. We took the, we attempted to take the Indian out of the child. Those words were used by politicians, by political leaders who were saying, being an Indian is being a savage. And therefore we have to take the kids out of the savage environment that they're in, put them in a quote, civilized environment, and that that's what the Jesuits did too. The Jesuits yeah, did that. Totally, no question. And that's one of the reasons why the, why the Pope is coming this summer <laughs> is to come to terms with what okay. actually happened. What were people thinking okay. when they did this? And we need to right. understand the meaning of it. So my suggestion yeah. is that we should be, for a while now, I would say that the word genocide is a word that everybody's afraid of. I don't say everybody, but a lot of people are afraid of in government because they think that 
oh, if I say that, then here's what here's what's going to happen. Here's what's going to flow. For example, President Clinton, when he was president, was afraid to describe what happened in Rwanda as a genocide because he knew that under the convention, you then have an obligation to do something about it. And right. so when our parliament says, well, we think it's what President Putin is doing is genocide, you say, okay, guys, so what are you doing? What are you prepared to do? And, you and that's your obligation. Them. That's your obligation, you're saying? That's your obligation. And so in other words, if we said that with China, we would be obliged to, to actually get out and do something. Well, it, the, the reality is, is that it would, it's something that we're all in a way kind of figuring out, well, what, what does it mean in order to make it clear to us what we have to do in response to it and what China's likely response to that would, would be? But the fact is the Canadian Parliament has expressed an opinion on it. A lot of people will have an opinion on it. And as I've said, in response to many questions, I said, well, I don't see why one would be afraid to use the word in the sense of, of understanding the nature of what it means to try to eliminate the ability of a people to be a people. And there's no question that the Chinese are doing things with respect to the Uyghur population that is deeply repressive, oppressive, and is destructive of their culture and of their way of life. That's the purpose of what, what they're trying to do. Okay. I just want to throw out Pierre Polyev and the use of the word freedom and take control of your life. Trudeau, stepping up. Everything is freaking stepping up. And everything is, we've got your back. So we need to call this, according to Orwell, we need to find out what this means. And as you've said, you know, all this repetitive bullshit, we have to, we have to call it out. Otherwise. <laughs> well, I, I think we're living in a, in a place where, and I talk about this in this, the, the last book that I wrote, which is about, about politics and how political conversation has been, political dialogue has really been turned into just a series of banalities one way or the other that have no, have no real meaning. What's uh, the name of that, uh, Bob? Well, the, the book that this happened, what, what's happened to politics? You and I have talked about that. Well, I thought you said most recent because that was a while back. Well, that was, the, that's the, but it is the most recent. <laughs> You're telling <laughs> the written, truth. I've written reports and given speeches, but it's the most recent one. Yes, yeah, what you're saying is it's an old book. Yeah, but it's still in print. So, yes, so I'm still yes it is. And it's I'm still, still important to read. Yeah. I'm still allowed to talk to people reading it. But why, why, what I was trying to say in that book was, was less profound, much less profound than what Orwell was saying, because he was describing, well, this is, means we're all becoming subject to a dictatorship. But I, to me, that's, this is not the world we're in right now. Okay. The world we're in right now is, is more complicated and, and more, in a way, it, it, it's, it's just that we've allowed language to be corrupted by, by constant repetition without thinking, well, what does this phrase mean? And, and what, what, does that, what does that do? And we all use these cliches, right? We all use cliches in everyday language. We talk, we, we, I'm sure I have phrases that I use over and over again that annoy people. But it's a good idea to kind of every once in a while say, and Orwell talks about this in his essay, Politics and Language. He said, yes. just go back over what you've said and figure out a way, is there a way of saying it more easily uh, than, than what, you've, what you've done? And as you know, he provided a kind of a, a guidebook at he the did. very end when he had these these little I'm just going to read them out because it's kind of interesting yes. to if I may just take advantage please, of this please thing. yes one yes. one never use a metaphor simile or other figure of speech which you are used to seeing in print two yeah. 
Never use a long word where a short one will do. Three, if it's possible to cut a word out, always cut it out. Four, never use the passive where you can use the active. Five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. Six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. Six good things to live by, uh, because I think they just remind you of, of how do you get to precision. And the point that you were making earlier is the one I wanna keep on making again. The language is the, is the window to what we're thinking. The language we use, the words we use, are a window to what's, what's in our heads and, and to what we think reality is around us. And if we use language in a way that's obscure or totally banal and repetitive, or we keep repeating cliches in response to what we're being asked, then we're showing the, the window to our, our sensitivity and our sensibilities is, is describing a pretty serious situation. <laughs> one that is not prepared to admit to reality. And the other one I love, the other part of the, 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 that article that I, that I love, the essay, is where he, he gives you these descriptions of four or five little short paragraphs from people. And you try to read them and you yes. read them over and yes. over again and say, what the hell were they talking about? Yeah, it's very good. Well, let me close, if I could, with a solution to all of our problems. I, I'm eager. I think all your listeners are eager to hear this. I think the solution is for people to set up book clubs, because I think that book clubs are a place where you can analyze language together in order to get to what you think the truth is and the true intent of the author, although that's difficult to determine for sure. But based on the text you're given, the words that are said, and your abilities to read and think about it, articulate and understand it, you're free to form an opinion upon which you can base your actions and behavior, your vote, your tastes, and your beliefs. So what do you think of book clubs? I think they're great. I belong to a few. I'll tell you the first one I joined, what was part of was really a study group in Oxford. And I was doing political philosophy and I couldn't understand Hegel. I just could not penetrate Hegel. Yeah. Uh, my, my prof was a guy, Isaiah Berlin, who was very funny and very direct. He said, Mr. Ray, you're not the first person who has not been able to understand Hegel. He said, I don't <laughs> think Hegel understood Hegel. My suggestion to you is, Take the phenomenology of mind, which was one of Hegel's most impenetrable, challenging books, and read it in company with others. So a group of us, five of us, set up this little group. We called it Hegel United. And we would, <laughs> there was always a fair amount of beer involved in the discussion. But we would, we, you know, it was, this, was, this was my student days. And we would, and we would try, to, try to figure out what does it mean? And we would entertain each other with, different theories as to what a sentence meant or how it worked. And yeah. that to me was, I did the same thing in law school too. We, we, yeah. we do the same thing with cases in law school. We'd have a group together and we'd say, what the hell does it taste mean? And we would all go about it. And, and I think having the ability to keep on reading and thinking about uh, what somebody means or what somebody's talking about and doing it in a very relaxed way in which you bring in people from all perspectives 
Yeah. Um, it's a great idea. I think it's I think it's a wonderful thing to do. And again, it, I think Orwell would approve because it would be a, a case where individuals would agree to you know take charge, assume agency, and say, let's read this and let's try and understand what it was all about. And of course, Orwell himself uh, was a frequent radio commentator. Uh, he yes. was in charge of uh, the BBC talks in the during the Second World War. So he was, you know, he was a very active uh, debater and, and, and he engaged with people. He wasn't afraid. And, and one, of, one of the problems we have with Twitter, of course, I mean, yes. I think, you know, would Orwell have been a, would, been a, would he have been on Twitter? I don't know, but we'll never know. But the fact is, is that Twitter can allow you to engage or it can allow you to just propagandize. Uh, and there are lots of people on it who, who just do that. They send out government messages that nobody reads. Or you can decide that you're going to actually engage with people and with the situation and tell it like it is. And, and that's another way of doing it. And, and then engaging in response. But a book club, as opposed to a tweet, allows you to have a yeah. more lengthy and engaged conversation. So I think you've, I think you've hit upon a new an, an answer. Now, how you can universalize, to use a non-Orwellian word that he would hate, how you can stretch that out to include to have a real impact, I don't know. But Certainly the idea that we should not be afraid to talk about words and phrases and what they mean. And is there a better way to say that? And is there a way to say that that actually provides a bit of a window into, into clarity? Then that's, that's very good. George Woodcock quoted, used to quote from a speech that, or a poem that Orwell wrote where he talked about the crystal spirit. Uh, that was the name of George Woodcock's book about Orwell. And I think the, the poem is, is a really simple description of, of a person or somebody that he saw, uh, and and he re was reflecting on 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 the the, the meaning of that meeting, uh, and and referred to the, the crystal spirit. And I think this is what Orwell was was really represents to me is somebody who was trying to be as clear as crystal about what he saw, and to find the words that would allow him to say it. In, in language that would be equally clear. And I think that's something we should all reflect on and think about. Well, my final point to that point is that uh, I think podcasts are great. More people that set them up, the better. And one of the key things about interviewing people on podcasts is not to feel ashamed if you don't understand and to keep questioning until you do understand. So I, I do understand you, uh, uh, Mr. Ambassador, at this point. So I don't know if I've got any more, if I've got any more questions. Well, I think in any podcast, there should be a, a limit to their length. Uh... This is what's happening right now. In <laughs> fact, we're just about to close. I just want to, again, thank you for, for taking the time and also to, to plug that essay, uh, Politics in the English Language by George Orwell. So again, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk. It's been a real pleasure. I love talking with you. Thanks, Nigel. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye for Take now. Take care. Take care. <laughs>